If you had just one prayer that you could pray, just one, but you knew that this one prayer would be answered, what would that prayer be? I mean, if you knew that God was going to grant you one thing, what would you ask? In, in Psalm 27, we find the answer to one godly man's prayer, uh, one godly man's answer to that question. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Psalm 27. If you don't, you can look on your phone. If you don't, then you can just go back and grab one. We have one in the back, and someone would be happy to hand one to you. Uh, We've been in a series called Come Awake that started at Easter. We've been talking about how the resurrection changes our lives, not just in that moment, but kind of forever and daily. And so we've been talking about what it means to have the resurrection change our life every day. Now, I've had had several conversations with people this week, uh, different kinds of people, and I imagine that I can guess what some of those prayers might be. So if it's hard for you to think of what your one prayer would be, um, listen to what, what possibly some other prayers might be. Uh, when I say these, some of them are, might be funny. Some of them are, are really, really serious, so I don't mean any of them in jest. Uh, but I think there are some of you that your one prayer would be for a job, or at least for a job for the summer. Some of you might pray that you could afford a house so you could move out of your parents' house. Some of you might be praying that your, your body would be healed or your back would be healed. Some of you would be praying that your kids would listen to you or that your kids would stay off of your legs for 30 minutes. Some of you would pray for healing for your moms. Some of you would pray that you could be a mom. Some of you would pray that your mom would say, no matter what, I love you. Some of you would pray that you could make enough money not to go in debt each month. Some of you would pray that your marriage would be healthy, that it would be happy, that it would be healed, that it might even be fun. What would your one prayer be? Now we find examples of this in scripture. Jacob was this guy, Abraham's grandson. Jacob prayed his one prayer was that he would be blessed. Then we've got Solomon. He was one of the kings of Israel. He prayed his one prayer was wisdom. King Hezekiah, a little bit after Solomon, he wanted his life to be spared, so that was his one prayer. I think that's a good prayer. Bartimaeus was this guy that ran into Jesus, not literally, but could have because he was blind. He prayed his one prayer would be to see. And even one of the criminals that hung on the cross next to Jesus prayed that his one prayer would be that God would remember him. And in Psalm 27, 4, we find David's answer to what that one prayer would be. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I just want you to think about that for a moment. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Because if I had one prayer, I don't think that would be my prayer. Um, I think I might ask God to do something. And when you think about what often fills people's prayers, it's to do something. Sometimes it's to bless food or 
to comfort, uh, prayers of safety. Sometimes it's even prayers of convenience. I don't know how many of you have prayed, oh God, please help me to find a good parking spot. Not making a judgment on any of those prayers. I've prayed many of them myself. Um, I, again, I just think that sometimes and oftentimes it's for God to do something. And, and if you think about this situation in Psalm 27, we know from kind of other sources, uh, if you look in David's life, he probably wrote this psalm at a time that Saul, who was the first king, was chasing him to kill him. And so he was hiding from Saul, running from him so that he wouldn't die. So if, it, if I had one prayer and I'm King David, I might pray, God, please help me to hide so Saul can't find me. I might pray, God, please help me to outrun Saul when he does find me. Please send an army to protect me or just take out Saul. Those would be some of the prayers that I might pray if I had one prayer given that situation. And yet, David prays that I might gaze upon the beauty of God. What is the value of of that. So some questions that I think flow from this are like, why, why beauty? Why was that so important for David? What does beauty have to do with the resurrection? And what does beauty have to do with us? So if we look at this idea of beauty, we see beauty in all of creation. The Psalms say the heavens declare the beauty of God. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's beauty and rhythm and harmony towards what God created. There was chaos, and it says that God created order. There was formlessness, and he created form. And so all of creation kind of explains that. And I see beauty in, in mountains. I see beauty in, in lakes. I love the Boundary Waters. I grew up in northern Minnesota. We got to go to a cabins a lot. And I just, the stillness of the lake, it's so easy for me to see God's beauty in that. Even, even in, um, in, in campfires, I think, just the, the beauty of the way a, a fire, I can't explain how that works. It's just that is particularly beautiful to me. But beauty often gets distorted. I mean, we were just talking about Genesis 1 and how it was good and God created and it was good and God created and it was good and in Genesis 2, it was good. It was very good. There was a woman, and, and, and the man said, whoa, man, and um, that was good. And then in Genesis 3, it was all of a sudden, it was bad. Um, beauty got distorted. The woman looked at the fruit, and it looked good, even though she wasn't supposed to take it. And so it was distorted, and from that moment on, it's been distorted. Maybe you've even heard of some of beauty's distortions. Maybe you've heard the phrase, beauty's only skin deep. You heard that one? If you haven't, you could go to Vegas and find out that it's true. Um, maybe you've heard that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. You heard that one? And, and this just means beauty is subjective. So, you know, you might not think a campfire or mountains or a lake is a beautiful thing. Maybe you think that this is a beautiful thing. Yes, okay. Huh? Yeah, 
I would disagree with you. I don't think it's a very beautiful thing, but maybe some of you do. It would just prove my point if you did. Um, I particularly think that, that this um, DA-1 triathlon bike from Felt is a beautiful thing. This is ultimate carbon fiber with super great disc wheels. This is a beautiful thing. If only I could ride it fast like it's supposed to be ridden, but it, I, I think it's beautiful. You might not. Um, I particularly think this picture is beautiful. It's being displayed in the gallery of uh, my daughter's room, uh, but it is a beautiful picture dealing with uh, genuine um, displays and arrays of light, but you might just think it looks like a homemade art project. Um, what about animals? Because maybe we disagree about about how we see beauty, but um, does, does beauty get distorted with animals? Think about a hummingbird uh, and, and, and how that bird beats its wings, I think, 200 times per minute. Um, or or uh, a platypus, which, you know, someone said is God's practical joke. Uh, if you've ever seen one, they, you, you wonder, is this beautiful or what is the functionality of a of a beaver slash otter slash duck. Uh, and that's where I think we get kind of confused because um, we live in a really functional society. I mean, our, our phones are made to do more and more things and our computers are made to do more and more things and our, our lives are made to do more and more things. They need to be functional. Um, and sometimes we confuse, I think we confuse meaning and functionality when we talk about beauty. Because um, really, what's the functionality of an elephant? I mean, I guess they're really strong. Uh, but yet, I particularly think they're quite a, quite a magnificent creature. Um, I don't exactly figure out how they fit into the evolutionary chain if they do, but, but again, um, this is something that, that you could say, well, it's just your opinion. You're su- subjective to it. So if you think about um, something that's not at all in, in the food chain, it's not at all in the, the functionality of something, uh, flowers that are on a mountaintop where almost no one has seen them in the world, why were they put there? Or, or universes that we can't even see, that are hundreds of thousands of light years away. Universe upon universe, if you were to zoom out and get outside of um, our solar system, you'd see the Milky Way. And if you got outside of our Milky Way, you'd see that our, our, our galaxy is just one big galaxy in the midst of several galaxies. And if you went even farther than that, you would see that, that you could see so many galaxies rotating around, around uh, that the Milky Way would almost look insignificant. And yet, I believe that God has created those things for meaning. Maybe, maybe not for functionality, but for meaning. Now, I think that's part of beauty and part of why to this question of why beauty, because, because God cares about aesthetics. He cares about beauty. 
Um, in Genesis 2, we read, and 1, 1 and 2, we read about the beauty and the order and the rhythm of creation. Two chapters. But if you've ever read Exodus, it's a great book if you haven't. It's only like 40 chapters, but it's it's good read. Um, Exodus decides to give 15 chapters to the design of the tabernacle or the temple or the place where God will be worshipped. Now, if you've read Exodus, you know that the people have been kicked out. They've left where they lived, so they're homeless, and they're in a desert, and they have to rely daily on God for food. I don't know if that's your situation. Homeless, um, in the desert, having to daily rely on God for food, but they're there, and yet, God says, okay, you know what? Here, Moses, this guy, uh, I'm going to explain five or six chapters on how exactly I want the temple. Then we read later, Moses explaining those things to the people. Same words, again. And then we see it explained again for the people to put the temple together, put the tabernacle together. I mean, right down to the, the colors Um, of the linens three times in a row. Obviously, if that is in there three times, there must be something significant to that. I think one of those simple takeaways is that God really cares about his worship and God really cares about how things look. In fact, in Exodus 35, it says this. It says, Moses said to the Israelites, Exodus 35, 30, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work with work in wood, and engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. He has given both him... And Ohilalab, son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers and designers and embroiderers in purple and blue and gold, or purple and blue and scarlet yarns and fine linens and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. Whoa. This is the first person in scripture, to be referenced or noted as filled with God's spirit. And he's into arts and crafts. I mean, when we think of arts and crafts, we think VBS, right? We think a summer camp. We think getting to go up in the woods and mom and dad like getting to go sit by the lake and go with that counselor and do arts and crafts projects. And we think glue and glitter and mess and, you know, all kinds of stuff that we, we outgrow, If you ask a six-year-old if they're an artist, do you know that over 90% of them say yes? And if you ask an 18-year-old if they're an artist, it's now under 5%. Like somewhere along the way, we think that being into arts and crafts is not um, mature, I guess. And yet, God says the first person, we know he's probably not the first person, but the first person referenced in the scriptures is Bezalel, who's skilled in arts and crafts. 
and he has the Spirit of God in him. If we go all the way to the back of the Bible, we see in Revelation that heaven, it's, it's pictured in streets of gold. And it talks about rubies and emeralds and jewels being in this place that God dwells forever. Beautiful things that he talks about here. Um, so God, I think God cares about beauty. I think Jesus cares about beauty. In, in, um, in Matthew 26, Jesus is having dinner and this woman comes and, and she takes a jar of expensive perfume and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And, and people were like, how could you do that? And Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing. In fact, it will be remembered for all of time. It's so beautiful. In, in Acts chapter 3, Jesus is with the disciples, or Jesus is with the disciples in spirit, but Jesus' disciples are at a gate around the temple. This one particular gate is called the beautiful gate. It's called the beautiful gate because it's made of Corinthian bronze, which is far more superior than gold or silver, far more valuable. And at the most valuable gate, there's an invaluable person there, uh, a leper, literally a discarded person from society. Isn't it interesting that that Jesus' disciples at the most beautiful, most valuable gate in the temple heal one of the most unvaluable people in society. I think God cares about beauty. I think Jesus cares about beauty. In Ecclesiastes, we see that, that God makes all things beautiful in his time. Now, in this chapter of Ecclesiastes, um, God, or the writer, the teacher, is talking about how there's a time for weeping and a time for celebrating, and there's a time to be born, and a time to die, and there's a time to kill, and a time to heal, there's a time to tear down, and a time to build up. All these things are God is in time, and in his time, he takes things, and he makes them beautiful. Is that what you need to hear today? That God takes things, and makes them beautiful. Because I don't know about you, but I'm hauling around a big bag of trash lately. I'm not trash. I'm just hauling it around. I think for some reason, like, there's this mess, and I think that God wants me to carry it around, and he, he doesn't, but I think he does. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you're a mom who, who is fed up with your kids, and you're hauling this messy thing called discipline around or parenting around, and you just want to go, what do I do with this? Um... Maybe you feel like you're hauling around your marriage or maybe you feel like you're hauling around your job. Maybe your mess is, is your job. God takes a mess and he makes it beautiful. And we see this in all of scripture through the whole thing. So in Genesis 1, it's all good. In Genesis 2, it's good. In Genesis 3, it's messed up. Like we got two chapters in and then all of a sudden it's messy. Because the man and the woman, they didn't follow God. They did what they weren't supposed to do. And then there's like, I didn't do it. No, you did it. It's your fault. And there's finger pointing and then there's shame and there's hiding. It's messy. And then they have kids and they have envy towards each other and competition and they kill each other. And I would call that kind of messy. And then there's a flood and there's trying to clean up a mess, but that's messy. And the guy who's supposed to be righteous, Noah, who gets on the boat 
um, which that's probably messy for a different reason, but um, he gets off the boat and he gets drunk and naked and makes a mess in front of his kids. And then God has the answer in Genesis 12 that Abraham is going to be this man and his wife and they're going to, they're going to restore things, they're going to redeem things that through them, like everyone's going to be blessed. Except Abraham's a mess. He like goes, there's, there's no food, so he goes to Egypt and he's like, oh, is this your wife? She's pretty cute. No, 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 this is my sister. Yeah, she's not my wife. I, I'm going to hide to escape things because I don't want bad things to happen. And then when my wife says, oh, I can't have kids, so you should sleep with my servant so she can give you kids. When does he think that's not going to be a mess? I mean, and it's a mess the whole time. And so the people that God is using to like clean things up are messy themselves. And we get to the Exodus and Moses kills someone. And so he goes in the desert and that's a mess for 40 years. And then he comes out and he leads the people out, not because he wants to, because God told him that he needs to. And these people are whiny and complainy and they worship idols. And I thought about it and I don't, I don't honestly think I'm that different than them. I whine way too much. I complain way too much. And, you know, if you think about an idol as something that you give worth, value, or power to, I think I have idols in my life. I think that God is not the only thing, being, or person that I put worth or value in. And God would call that idol worship. The kings are a mess. There are five, one out of five kings that actually want to worship God. The rest, they're a mess. They just lead people away from God. Um, Jesus comes and it's a mess because his parents aren't married. That's kind of a scandal. And he's born in a feeding trough in a cave. That's kind of a mess for more than one reason. And, And then he ends up being killed. And I don't mean that lightly, but that's a mess. And we think the early church, if you've studied the Bible before, you think, oh, if we could just like do Acts 2, if you've ever heard that at church, like we just meet together and pray together and be generous. And sometimes we've even said that. Wouldn't that be great? And the people were like, yeah, wouldn't that be great? And then they're not because there's lying in Acts chapter 5 and in Acts chapter 6, there's favoritism. And then in Acts chapter 15, they can't even figure out if they should let people in or not. Well, these people aren't quite like us, so should they come in? It's a mess. And then we read, if you read the letters in the New Testament, these people who are are writing to these churches, these churches have put themselves in a mess. Um, Corinthians is one of my favorites um, because there's excessive wealth. um, They're obsessed with body image. They have incestual relationships, sexual promiscuity. They worship idols, and they get drunk at communion. That's why we have grape juice. Um, just so we don't get drunk at communion. And, and, and yet, God's answer to the mess is that he will get in and he will get his hands dirty. He doesn't leave these people all by themselves. And isn't it good that he doesn't leave us all by, himself, all by ourselves? So, and that's what I think beauty has to do with the resurrection, I mean, think about it. In the, in the climax of this mess, God takes a, a cross and, and he puts his son on it to be killed. 
And yet, through that death, sin is defeated. Satan is defeated. The world starts going back to what it was like in new creation. Hebrews 12.2 says this. It says that Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. What was the cross? It was the ultimate capital punishment torture device. And Jesus just calls it worthless. Like, death can't do anything to me. Sin can't do anything to me. I've taken it all. I've defeated it. And now, my people, anyone who calls on my name, can have restored relationship with God. Anyone, regardless of what they've done, regardless of the mess they're dragging around, or the mess they're in. I think um, the... Sorry if I go a little bit too church history here, um, but the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Orthodox Church, which basically means people that became Christian a long, long time ago who were like in Eastern Europe, um, they thought that part of, this, part of the idea of the cross was that God was restoring his perfect image that was broken and shattered at, um, because we screwed up. People in Rome and kind of Western Europe basically said, no, 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 it's all about like you getting your relationship with God restored. And they're just, they kind of overemphasize each of those things. And I think they're both right. And the idea is that God can restore our relationship with him. And that's very good. But the other thing is that God takes his image that he placed inside of human beings. Not that all creation isn't amazing, but he placed his image in humans. That's what the story says. And through the resurrection, that image is restored And that image brings forth new life. That's why the cross is so key, because the things that God called us to in Genesis 1, to be created in the image of God, to create in the image of God, is now able to happen again because we have restored relationship with him. Because he restores the image of God in us, we can now be his image bearers and not mess it all up. Um, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So this Ephesians 2.10 is kind of the crescendo to a beautiful little section of Scripture where basically God rescues us by his grace, which means his unearned, unmerited, unconditional favor. And if you had a mom that showed grace, I think you know what I mean. When I came home at 12.30, when I was supposed to be home at 11.30, and she just rolls her eyes at me and she says, go to bed, she was giving me grace. When the car should have been taken away for a month and she goes, just go to bed, I did not get what I deserved. It was unconditional favor. Um, We receive this through faith, which means we believe that God can do what he promises. That's what those really amazing verses say. And, and handiwork is actually, in Greek, it's where we get our word poem from. I, I don't know if you're a poet. I got to do a poetry anthology for my second grader, of which I almost um, broke the seventh commandment about, I don't know, murder. 
Um, <laughs> because there was 10 page of instructions for this poetry anthology for an eight-year-old written to like a college student. But anyway, I digress. Anyway, she actually enjoyed creating these poems. And there was a sense of artwork and creativity. And I realized that you can say things with poems and you can say things with music and you can say things with lyrics that you can't say with just regular words. And that's what this is getting at. This handiwork means a work of art, a masterpiece. And that's what God calls us. Now, it doesn't mean our rescue is a masterpiece that we've produced. What it means is that instead those who believe in Jesus are themselves a masterpiece because God has rescued them, because he produces that. And God doesn't want us to just sit in that as works of art. He wants us to do good works, not to earn his favor, but to just reflect his beauty. So when we create, we reflect God's image. That doesn't mean you have to be an artist. It doesn't mean you have to sing or play an instrument. And maybe you can't do any of those things. It doesn't let you off the hook. It means that, um, like Exodus 35, Bezalel, who's this master artist, reflects the image of God. It means that, like, if we're a business person, or a student, or a professor, or a healthcare, and we create, we are reflecting God's image. Um... When I think about the number of nurses that we have in our community, when, when we care for those that can't care for themselves, we're reflecting God's image. When we teach people to, to sing or play an instrument, we're reflecting God's image. And, and when we're creative and innovative, we're reflecting his image. And this is what um, a smart guy named N.T. Wright calls building for the kingdom. Not building the kingdom because God builds the kingdom. Only God can build the kingdom. But building for the kingdom is kind of like this. Um, I had the privilege of going to Barcelona, Spain uh, in 1992, a long, long time ago. And uh, there's this church called the Sangrada Familia Church. Uh, It is a gorgeous church. Um, It's not done yet. Uh, it had been started in the 1800s and then worked on and then the family went bankrupt and then somebody picked it up again and started. It's got these four giant turrets on it and they were just starting the eight, the, the five, six, seven, and eight turrets when I was there and they're just like, oh yeah, we're really hoping this is completed by 2025. And so now in 2012, um, they do have eight, they don't have the 12 yet and it, now they've said it's going to be like 2050 before they complete it. Um, but these, these masons and these stonecutters and these artists and these sculptors, they work on this thing that they may actually never see come to completion. And yet, the beauty isn't in the outside. The beauty and the, is what will fill it when it is finally complete. The praises of God's people. The calling out of the attributes of his goodness. And this is what building for the kingdom, I think, looks like, is that these people are not building this for now, they're building this for the future. So when we design or create or build or paint, we are not designing for now, we're designing for the future. Um, 
when we think about the, this ministry center that we're working on and, and putting up walls and sheetrock, we're not designing that to be a building or to be a nice building. We're designing it because of what will fill it. Broken people being restored. Um, an understanding of God that's clear to understand. Um, people that want to know who God is. And so this is working for the kingdom. And one day, people will see the completed beauty. So if you're tired in your job, or you're tired in your relationships, or you serve in a ministry area and you're tired, think about building for the kingdom. Think about this church in Barcelona. If your life is a mess, and you're like, it's never going to be complete. Think that, remember that we are God's masterpiece. So we are complete in him and he is preparing these good works for us to do in advance. He already knows about them and he will one day make those things right. Uh, one of the ways that, that we think this might come out over the next few months, just here, in our church is um, to experiment with music on Sundays to create kind of an artist guild or a musician guild, if you will, to have different um, bands or artists come in and sing and play and get a diversity of music going on and expressions of worship to grow our understanding of beauty and art and worship and to what that looks like. Um, One of the other ways to do that um, is that we're going to invite you to make your mark literally, on the church. So we've got a logo that's going to come up here, and Cindy, one of our resident artists, is going to be in the back there. And um, we invite you to take, um, when Taylor Ann shows us beautiful music in a moment, to take your hand, well, probably more like your finger or your thumb, because your hand is too big, take a finger or a thumb to dip it in the paint and to put your fingerprint in there to say that you're part of the image of God and you are placing your image in this icon that is not a building or an institution, but a people. Um, We had a family meeting a few weeks ago and in the family meeting we said we don't really have membership so we can't really vote, but not voting doesn't mean not influencing. This is an example of getting to to make your mark and getting involved in teams and getting involved in leadership things is a way to influence that. The other thing, you know, we offer ourselves, we talk about financially offering ourselves, but we don't often talk about skills and passions. And so there's a card in your worship folder, and I just invite you to take this out. This may be something that has to do with restoration. It may be just something between you and God, that God has been prompting something in you that you can create, that you innovate, that you, that you design and that you are good at. And you've never thought about what does it look like to give that to God. This is a chance while that song is being played for you to write that out and, and say, this is that passion, that thing that I think about that I really need to give to you, God. And if you want help at what does that look like, 
then you can put down, yes, contact me. If you don't, and you're just like, this is between me and God, then write it down so we can pray for you, but then we won't contact you. It's a way for you, to, for you and I to express that we are offering ourselves to God. So you can put that in a basket that will be over at that table when you put your thumbprint down in there. And as you feel prompted, you can come over, you can put your mark. You don't have to, but we'd encourage you to. If you want to bring your kids in after the service in a couple of minutes, you can have them do it. It'll be a good time. Uh, you can pick your color, but then Cindy will tell you where it goes so it looks right. And then we're going to put this thing up in the ministry center. The point, though, isn't the artwork. The point is the reminder that through these different icons, different messages, different images that might look like a mess, that God is going to make those things beautiful. And may you hear today that if you're in a mess, God wants to make it beautiful. He gets in, gets dirty, and he makes all things right. Will you pray with me? God, I personally ask for your forgiveness for for seeing beauty as functionality and so often overlooking beauty for the sake of beauty. Beauty for the sake of things that point uh, us to you. Sometimes I go too fast and I think about getting to the end when, when life is just as much about the journey and seeing beautiful things along the way and making beautiful things in us that I miss that, and and that means I miss you. So I ask for your forgiveness. I think other people might be in the same place where they have missed your beauty along the way, where we have not seen your image in others. We might not even have seen your image in us, and I ask that you speak to us about that today. I thank you for your grace, your unmerited favor that you reach down to us and you place out your hands and say, do you want to be restored with me? I've done this. You just need to respond in faith. God, I pray that we would do that today, especially if we've never done that before. God, I pray that as we press our imprint on a piece of paper, we'd be reminded that you put your imprint on us, that your image is in us and it is our job to carry your image and be your image bearers in the world. Not to build the kingdom, because only you can do that, but to build for the kingdom. So speak to us, God, as we, as we commit ourselves to you, as we offer our passions and our interests and our skills to you, maybe for this place, but for your kingdom. Pray that you'd speak loudly in Jesus' name. Amen.